my name is Winnie Bernard. You're now listening to The Ice Podcast, a podcast about innovators, creators, and entrepreneurs from underrepresented communities. My guest today is Justin Wu. Justin is an internationally recognized photographer, director, and content creator. I found Justin on my eternal search on Instagram for content that moves me, and I was mesmerized by his creations. I knew I had to slide into his DMs. After moving to Paris over a decade ago, Justin's career took off and his talent propelled him to working with the world's most prestigious brands such as Dior, Gucci and Vogue, and working all over the world capturing the likes of Bella Hadid, Winnie Harlow and Victoria Beckham, just to name a few. I met with Justin in his new Toronto studio for a lovely conversation about creativity, his unconventional trajectory to a photography career, and the importance of telling diverse stories. Meet the incredibly talented Justin Wu. Hi, Justin. Hello. Thank you so much for welcoming us into your home. Of course. I'm like a big fan of yours. Um, fun fact, I stalked you on Instagram. I don't even know how I found you. And I was just so attracted by the beauty that you display on that platform. And thank you for wanting to do this with me today. Of course, it's my pleasure. Um, the first thing I wanted to ask you is that uh, you are from Toronto. Uh, your parents came from Hong Kong. And like me, you had to sort of navigate like a duality in terms of cultures. Like, how did you find yourself in that? I'd say that was pretty challenging. Um, so I, my parents from Hong Kong and they had raised me uh, with Eastern values at home. At the same time, I was being taught with Western values yes. while I was in school. Um, so I think that there were some identity issues I had when I was growing up. Uh, it was a bit challenging to kind of um, meet, become friends with, and hang out with my, my other Canadian friends yeah. who were not immigrants. Um, but in the end, I think it, what, it's what makes us us, right? Absolutely. So, um, of course, we are a product of our parents, and we're a product of where we're from. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, um, that is just how we were brought up. So, I don't know for you, my mom's an artist, but she thought I was going to become something like a lawyer, doctor, accountant, because that was the expectation that often children of immigrants have. Were they any expectations of you? Because I know that your dad... Uh, was a doctor. Yeah, he was a doctor, and of course, um, I was told to follow to follow in my father's footsteps. And there was certainly an expectation that I would become a doctor. So I went as far as actually applying to med school. I did the MCATs, but um, uh, at the at the at the final hour, at the eleventh hour, I decided that this is not the career I would like to pursue. I respect the, the profession profoundly, but. Um, I'm you. an artist. Yeah. <laughs> so I know that you went to Queens first uh, in science, and Queens is an Ivy League school here um, in Canada. And so you go to Queens, but just before uh, you go to Queens, you get a camera, your first camera. Yeah. Who gives it to you? So my dad got me my first camera because I, as I was growing up, I had focused a lot of my attention on uh, sketching and drawing, okay. and done some drawing competitions. I was. Uh, it was a big passion of mine, and okay. I really wanted to pursue the arts. But my parents didn't didn't encourage that as much. Um, so in university, they thought that photography would be a very fast art because you'd aim at a subject, you click the shutter, 
and it's done, right? Yeah. What more can, what can more could do? it be? What, what, more, what more could it be? But certainly, I I end up spending even more time in photography than on any other art form. Really? Um, just because I, I connected with the medium. I love how instantaneous it is, okay. but also how real it is because we're capturing something that exists as opposed to fabricating uh, via paint or sketching. And I, I, I really love that process. So while you're at Queen's pursuing your science degree, is, that, is it when you decided that you wanted to sort of learn more with that camera that your father gave you? So how did you learn to craft other than just click and shoot? That, I really did, that was it. I, I, I clicked and shot, um, and I did that quite a bit when I was in first university. And, um, but I was very fortunate that um, while I developed that interest, uh, I had to also take a second job or to take a job to kind of pay for tuition. Okay. And I applied and was accepted into Camera Kingston. So there was a small camera company uh, that was downtown Kingston, um, close by where the university is, and I spent my evenings there working. Most times during the week, it was quite empty and quite quiet, so I had the chance to also peruse a lot of the photography books, and most people there are veteran photographers themselves, so I was able to kind of pick their brains yeah. and, and learn about the craft from their point of view. So I was... Uh, I had quite a bit of the education just from working at the store. So you complete your science degree, and then you decide to go to business school. Yeah. Was that part of a trajectory um, uh, that you thought, I'm going to business as a career, or was that to support your artistry? Well, it's actually interesting. It's a bit of both. Okay. And uh, so my parents, my dad pushed me into the sciences, and of course I went as far as to by the third year, apply to med school, do the MCATs. But again, at the 11th hour, I realized it was, not, it was really not what I wanted. And as I was already approaching that one year close to graduation, I knew I needed to get out of this. Um, so I found a segue <laughs> that would satisfy my parents. Yeah. Um, and at the, at the same time, also achieve my aim at trying to figure out whether I can make photography into a career. Okay. So the, the, the way I sold it to my parents was that if I went to business school, um, I would have, I could be a businessman. So <laughs> not really telling them that I would, I was considering photography as a career, okay. but, uh, I kind of focused on entrepreneurship when I was in, 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 at, at Western and business. Okay. And so that was what kind of led me down that path, but my parents never knew. Okay. I like that. It was sneaky. So in your last semester, at business school, you decided to do an exchange in Paris. What was your hope? Uh, what did you want to accomplish there? So just to one little step back to, to explain yeah. why that happened is when I was already at, say, first year university at Western, I had decided that uh, I wanted to go into portraiture, and that's when my, my art evolved. I built my own studio at Western, uh, became one of the, the campus editors, photo editors, and I was discovered by a photo agency in Toronto when I was in school at Western. At Western, okay. Um, and over the Christmas holidays, they, I had met them, and they had encouraged me to go to New York just to kind of see whether there was a potential career for me, a, a, a bigger career. And they must have, say, they must have seen some, some kind of potential. Mm -hmm. When I was in New York, uh, now one of my mentors um, had recommended that your work is great, um, and I asked for advice and he said, if you can go to Europe, mm -hmm. you can make it anywhere. But if you start off here, you may have a, 
a challenge breaking into the international scene. Why did he say that, you think? At the time, it was because um, there was no s prominent social media. The internet was not in its infancy, but uh, people still relied heavily on websites uh, and print work. So there was a sort of mentality that uh, the Europeans had this a little bit more of a snobbish approach, thinking that their work is deeper uh, and has more depth. So European photographers can work in America, but American photography is too fluffy to be accepted into the European community. Like so too that's, commercial. Again, that's the, sort of the terminology. It's, okay. too, it's too commercial, but it's hard to, I mean, most people don't know what that means, but yeah, it's, yeah. it's too, too light. <laughs> um, and as a result, um, the, depending on where you were based, people associated your work okay. with that country okay. or that, 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 that market. So I understood that, and that was the reason why at the last year of school, just at the last hour when I saw an opportunity to, to go to Paris on exchange, um, I took the opportunity and applied and got in. So when you got to Paris, is that when you stayed or did you only stay for that semester? No, that was when I stayed. So okay. I was only supposed to stay for that semester. Um, and thanks to the French system, uh, <laughs> there was a big strike. I had more than a month off of university. So I had the chance to discover my, my photography. I had really no interest in, uh, in actually studying at that university. I was, even, I was probably one of the worst attendees at school. <laughs> I was in Paris, hustling, making my rounds, trying to meet as many agencies as possible yeah. to kind of get it, it into the market. And, and it worked. Um, I was lucky that a photo agency had taken interest. I uh, was already working with different modeling agencies and that really launched my career. And I was already booked my first client while I was still there on that last semester of university. Okay. But the challenge was I had to come home because my visa was going to run out, my student okay. visa. So I kind of, uh, kind of ex went to a far extreme. I didn't tell my parents too. I applied for a master's program in business, not really caring what the program again. <laughs> just so you were Just so I could stay, stay even longer. <laughs> and so I did an, an internship uh, working in marketing at a fashion house, and then I was accepted into uh, a master's program of the same university that same year. So I never left. You I never stayed, left, you stayed. And I stayed there for more than nine years. So while you're doing all of this schooling, in quotation, yeah. <laughs> in France, you've already sort of built up a client base. Yes. And this is done through cold calling, hustling. Yeah, all that. All that. Well, there was a bit of both. So I started mostly uh, cold calling and getting into the model agency world, but because I was working for free uh, and they were very satisfied with the results, the way that it works in Europe, uh, much like how I imagine it, it would work here, is that once your work gets out there and clients perhaps see during casting different models, they ask the models who shot that, or they would ask the modeling agencies who did that photography. We, we really like that style. So it was actually in part mostly the model agencies that recommended me uh, or the models themselves who I developed a rapport with uh, that would pass me off to clients. So I didn't have to hustle too much for clients. I was, so that's, I was quite fortunate in that sense. Moving to Paris came with its fair share of challenges. For starters, Justin didn't speak French when he arrived. 
He also had to deal with the frustration of bureaucracy in France in order to get the proper visa. But Justin knew that Paris was the place he needed to be. And thanks to brute force and willpower, he made it there. And eventually managed to call it home. I'd say that to me it was, uh, it was absolutely essential because um, I was able to touch uh, the fashion world, which is, the, which is the area I wanted to get into. Um, and the resources are there. All the fashion houses are there. All the magazines were there. All the contacts are there. So the proximity to all that was basically gave me the opportunity to pitch and present myself. And I was very lucky that from the get-go, it was those clients that kind of kept me going. Um, and even if I were to stay in Canada, I would still have aimed for those clients, but be, be already being there, it launched my career. And because of that, my mentor was right. Uh, once I had those European clients, I was able to then come back to America. And, and of course, they welcomed me with open arms. You're an extremely talented artist, uh, very humble. Uh, you've shot some of the most beautiful faces in this world, hoping that I'll be one of them too one day. Absolutely. <laughs> and um, you've also worked with amazing clients, amazing fashion brands, such as Gucci, Dior, Louis Vuitton, to, just to name a few. Now, you've established this career, and then you decide to sort of take... Um, a switch. Uh, every artist needs to go a little bit further. Yeah. When did you know that you needed to start exploring video directing? Right. As an artist, I think the a lot of my drive is to push the boundaries, push my own boundaries, and challenge myself. So um, I'd say it was actually happenstance that the Canon 5D, which was a revolutionary camera mm -hmm. at the time, was one of the best for for photography. Um, also ha introduced the HD video function. Okay. So without question, you had to try it. I didn't think too much of it. I played with it and I posted some videos on YouTube. Okay. And YouTube also was just in its infancy and really picking up, uh, developing its own subscriber base. And, my, and the videos I posted went viral. Uh, I really had no expectation it would be, but it did. I was quite surprised. And, um, and then when I did another two videos like the, of the same style, mm -hmm. and it went viral again, and it actually got the attention of some big artists. Yes. And so I quickly went into the music video world as a result. And, and, and since then, a lot, of the, a lot of that work actually was publicized on television. So that really validated that there was a future in it. Mm -hmm. And I was... I learned a lot, again, through YouTube, mm -hmm. and it was such a fun experience that um, as I dived deeper into the video world, I realized that was more of my calling before film. So is that when, um, at that point, is that when you worked uh, on Jay-Z's Life and Time? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Actually, so it was because, so basically I started, I wouldn't say I started, but uh, I was on the forefront where I created and introduced LibDub into the fashion world. Oh, wow. So the way, I, the, the way that, that, that all happened was um, as, I was, as I was thrown into the fashion world, not knowing the rules of fashion, I, uh, I experimented and did a lot of things. I broke all the rules. So I would attend fashion shows, and then I became very familiar with the models 
um, at the shows that were there because we're at the time we we're all about the same age. And we became good friends. So I just asked them, could you sing and dance on the runway? And I would just film it on the side okay. in the audience. Anyhow, that and of course I was banned from the shows, but once it went online and YouTube, it went viral. And that one style of the kind of freestyling lip dub edited to music really went very viral and it was Jay-Z's team that contacted me and that was my first foray to get into the music video world. Whoa. Yeah. It's, it's a big one. It was a big one. <laughs> a big one right. I remember when we uh, first met and you told me something and I want to know more about that. You said that YouTube became sort of like your schooling. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Sure. So after I had, uh, you know, studied studied. I, I, I had uh, got my education from Cameron Kingston. Yeah. Years later, as I really wanted to kind of dive into the profession. So this is before I did it professionally. Okay. Um, YouTube, of course, was, was becoming to become a, a, a bigger resource. And both in photography and eventually in film, which I'm now in now. So I'd say that, um, yeah, around the late, maybe 2008, 2009 was when I was, when I was beginning to, to realize how powerful of a resource YouTube was. Yeah. So we've spoken to a lot of entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. um, and one of them literally built her business because of social media. Yet, right. for you, it was different. The yeah. way you went about it mm-hmm. in order to, um, to live your art, right. to live I, as an artist. I'm not yeah. relying on social media. It, yeah. it, it, it's, it's a tool. It's a tool. That's part of my kit, but it's not my... It's not something that I need to use. Yeah. Um, especially going to film and television, like they they don't care about social media at all. Like a director's presence doesn't matter, just so long I can execute the television <laughs> program. Or uh, it's like one of the only jobs where people don't care about. Like I don't think because because we're we're not in front of the camera. It's sort of like producers. Do yeah. producers need to be in social media? Probably not. I think they certainly need to have a presence, a presence. for their television program and for PR. Sure, but they themselves don't necessarily need to. I think we're just behind-the-scenes executors. We'll be back with more Chestin Wu. Looking for a custom order for T-shirts or sweaters for your company or your special event? Antica, that's E-N-T-K, can print it for you. Affordable and ethical. Get them your designs. They will take care of the rest. Visit them at entk.ca. That's entk.ca. Despite Paris being the place that allowed Justin to begin his flourishing career, he eventually had to leave. As is often the case in life, familial obligations draw us back to our hometown. So after almost a decade abroad, Justin decided to come back to Toronto. I'm very happy to be back and very proud to be back. Admittedly, um, and this is something that I'm perhaps I'm a bit ashamed about, that the life that I had abroad was so exciting, living between Paris and L.A. and New York, which was great, that I did not realize how amazing and how incredible the content that was being made in Toronto over the past few years were. It's evolved. Um, it's evolved significantly. Um, even when you when I when I watch some of my my favorite Netflix comedies like even Schitt's Creek, I did not realize that is actually a Canadian show. It's actually a CBC show, um, and I was ashamed that I it it didn't cross my mind that Canada could create such top tier content, 
and of course I do now. Um, and one of the reasons why I came back was more for my family. Um, and, but that said, since I've been back, I, my eyes are very wide open and I feel very passionate that thanks to the Canadian social system, which led me to get into high school, university, and have all these opportunities um, that I feel it's my turn to give back. And I'm proud and I want to contribute to the Canadian landscape. Uh, what do you miss the most about living in Paris? Oh, uh, the lifestyle. There was, there's no question that um, I see it beginning in Toronto, but the pedestrian lifestyle is just incredible. To, to wake up, smell croissants from the bakery just beneath me, and have a coffee and just walk the streets, I find is therapeutic. It's meditative, um, and it's in a way sometimes even cathartic too. Um, it allows me to, to, to open my mind to different possibilities and thoughts, and I can walk the same street a thousand times, but it, it, it feels fresh. It always does. Um, but that's something I miss, that I think Toronto is beginning to have that kind of pedestrian culture, but too often I still feel, I, I still feel that I see people darting from one place to the next. And that discourages me from, from going outside and walking around because people are only outside to go from one point to the next point mm -hmm. rather than enjoying the stroll. Mm -hmm. So, and, and of course, good food. That's, that, there's, there's no question, I think. The food culture there is just magnificent. And what do you love the most about Toronto, your hometown? Um, I love how 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 engaging it is now how how active it is uh on all fronts um that was i think one of the reasons why i did not feel like i missed much when i left many years ago now coming back here it is so engaging and so active you see new pop-up shops you, need, you see new exhibitions you're bringing in world-class artists um here even the AGOs, I, I feel is, it's, it's curating much better than it used to be, even going to the ROM. And there, there, there are so many activities that are going on here that are just beyond local. They're inviting people to come here. And I think that activity is, 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 is infectious. Mm -hmm. And when you see initiatives like House, when you see all these top artists, respected artists, role models come back to Toronto, and want to create a hub for creators, that to me tells me everything. It tells me that this is a city that encourages diversity. It's a city that is willing to experiment and not stay in the past. Um, and so altogether, it's a, it's a great place to live because it's so alive. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about diversity. It's something that you and I have spoken uh, about in the past. Diversity is like the new buzzword. Uh, we've been living diversity since the day we were born, but Absolutely. that's it's the new buzzword. And yet, although it is the new buzzword, we don't see that representation behind the camera, in front of the camera. What do you think needs to happen for us to move this forward? Simply, we need the executives to be open to changing the writer rooms. Yeah. Um, and that, I think, is actually the core. I've been thinking about this for, for quite a while, and I realized that it's important to have 
diverse people behind the camera, in front of the camera, but in reality, genuine diversity is to have diverse stories, not just representation. And I think where it all comes from is the writing room. The fundamental of the story, what the story is, determines what, who the characters are and what happens. Representation, I find, is great. We are, st we're, it, the needle is moving. By normalizing, by putting a, uh, an African-American face on a mainstream television show or an Asian face on a television show, that is making progress. It's normalizing that we have a diverse society. But the test that I really question sometimes myself is if I were to read the script on the television series or I would read the script on the feature film and I block out the names and I think about, and I read it aloud, you ask yourself the question, could this be read by another race? Mm -hmm. And that to me is the true test of, is this really a diverse story mm -hmm. or is it all written with one race in mind and you just superimpose um, uh, an, a, diff a person with, of a different ethnicity to say mm -hmm. those words. Mm -hmm. And I'm finding that that's happening a lot in Hollywood. Um, but fundamentally, if you do have a diverse, ethnically diverse, sexually diverse mm -hmm. uh, 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 writing room, then they will be the ones that will write diverse stories. Absolutely. And write these characters in. Absolutely. And I also think there's an awareness that needs to be done as well because you've mentioned and I also mentioned earlier on that our parents didn't know about these things. So if we mm -hmm. if you don't know that these things exist and our parents are the influencers in our mm -hmm. lives, then so there's a lot of education that needs to be done um, on all sides, really. And, and, and to that point, I, what, there was a conversation I had with, with both of my parents um, a little while ago, and they were, we were just talking about diversity, about how I was getting into film, and they were very supportive after they, after they realized I was getting into this field. And I had asked them, would you want your story to be told? And they kind of looked at each other and thought, I don't think people would care. So that, I think, was part of the problem that, again, just because you have greater, greater representation on screen uh, does not mean that it encourages greater diversity of stories. Mm -hmm. But so somewhere along the line, which is to me the executives, the executives need to be the ones who are making the call and taking the initiative to say, we will tell diverse stories. And, and therefore, when we see that on screen, maybe then all these minorities out there, even in Canada, which is one of the most multicultural countries in the world, mm -hmm. can say, I have a voice and I have a story to tell. I know you spend quite a bit of time in LA um, and that you're spending that time in LA to sort of work more as a director in LA. What has been the response thus far? The response has been good. Okay. Um, but there has been some challenges I've faced. And I think this is not just me, but many, many young directors, is that with the budgets increasing dramatically for a lot of these shows um, and a lot of pressure that they have, despite more there are now more opportunities than ever, I think, yes, they are pushing for diverse people behind the camera, but I think because it's a business, 
And because they had to answer to shareholders, they would still prefer to have the safer choice. Okay. And there is a gulf between directors who come from the TV commercial land, who have a lot of experience on big budgets, like myself, but to jump into television or into feature films is such a large leap Mm -hmm. that we just need more executives to take the risk. Um, And unfortunately, I still find that the safer option for many of these networks is to go with people with more experience and who were they in the past? White people. White people. Needless to say, Justin's path hasn't always been a straight one. In order to build a career he has today, he studied a variety of different things, moved to another country, and let one medium lead him to the next. So I had to ask him what kind of advice he would give to someone who is a younger version of himself. I would tell them that um, every story matters. Um, and you have a voice, so speak up. Yes. Um, whether your parents accept it or not, if that is your true calling, we would love to hear it. Yes. And there, are, there is a large open market out there, there's a large world out there that will be more accepting of diverse stories, but we need to start hearing it first. So I would say don't be discouraged. I would say that you should be focused and just write your story. I love that. So now that we're BFFs, um, I want to get to know you better because that's what BFFs do. And I want to know what inspires you. I'd say a lot of the the world news inspires me. Um, As a storyteller, again, I'm always looking for the next story. I'm always looking for new ways to tell stories and what better stories are there than what's going on in the world. So I find reading the, reading the paper cover to cover for me is, is, is the best way to kind of absorb because nowadays with the, the, the changing landscape abroad, the geopolitics, which is kind of going awry, I feel. Um, it's wild mm-hmm. and unpredictable. Yeah. And there, is a, there are a lot of stories that can be told from that point of view and a lot of surprises. So on one hand, I, I actually find reading world news entertaining mm-hmm. because it's, it's, it's shocking. It's, uh, it's weird. Um, it's moving. And, and we need to hear about it. So I find that by taking that kind of global perspective, by reading news from Africa, by reading news from Southeast Asia, uh, or even South America, I'm able to get a more global perspective. And once I have that, and once I see all and absorb all these different types of stories, I can then think, look to myself and think, what is the story I want to tell now? How do I want to tell it? And is there something out there that, can, that I can synthesize and create something new out of? So I find that to me is the best source of inspiration. What's going on in the world today? Absolutely. What does uh, beauty mean to you? What is beauty? To me, beauty is something that is beyond... Hard to say, actually. I'd say that beauty is whatever inspires me. So 
it's not an object. It's not a person. It can be inanimate. It can be animate. Um, it can also be a story. Okay. So I think it's whatever inspires me. Is, okay. To me, is beautiful. Yeah. And Justin, what's next for you? What's next is, um, well, right now, I am uh, just finished a draft of my feature film script. I'm continuing uh, on to the next draft, uh, following some, some notes. And I'm very excited to hopefully have it ready uh, by, by the end of September so I can begin pitching it around. But it's something I'm very, it's a story I'm very passionate about. Um, it touches on some big themes. Um, unfortunately, I can't talk too much about it right now, but um, it is and will be a Toronto story and something that I'm very proud of. And it will be a diverse story with representation, of course. I love that. Thank you for your time, Justin. Thank you so much. It's been really great to speak to you today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. That's all for now. Thank you for listening. The ICE podcast was executive produced by me, Winnie Bernard. Our producer and editor is Alison Vicrobeck. Our associate producers are Sarah Foster and Tarlarner Sassian. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. For more ICE content, go to our Instagram page at ICE Podcast. Bye for now. Oh,